There are two forms of grasping in the Buddhist tradition. There's reaching, oh, I want that. I've got to get that goal. I've got to get to there, over there on the other side of the river and protecting. So reaching for your imagined fantasy life and then protecting what you have, right? And we see this all over our political landscape right now, the suffering of protecting power and wealth. And it's another form of grasping. So. I, I'm not closely following Liz right now because I'm writing another book of my own, but she's right on. That's the big lie of our culture and what's made us so selfish, really. So focused on ourselves where the, the real freedom comes in, in letting go of that grasping and clinging and craving and holding on and protecting and opening our hearts. This is Aliveness. I'm your host, Allison Crossway, a guide and former psychotherapist here to empower you to break out of your old patterns, shift into a new state of being, and ignite your aliveness. I'm so excited today to be here with Stephen Cope. Many of you know him through The Great Work of Your Life, which I have recommended to many of you. Stephen is a best-selling author and scholar who specializes in the relationship between the Eastern contemplative traditions and Western depth psychology. And that is how I found him. I had just begun therapy in 2004 and just done two yoga classes. And I walked into Barnes and Noble in, in Chicago. And I had this deep intuitive sense that I was looking for something. And I went to the spiritual section of Barnes and Noble. Like I'm looking for something. It's not this, it's not this. I'm looking for something. I'm looking for something. And what popped out? Yoga and the quest for the truth. And I knew instantly my whole body knew this is what I was looking for. And I met Winnicott and Cohood and true self, false self and projective identification. And my intuition that what was happening on the mat was very related to what was happening in therapy. You just spelled it all out. Yep. And it was a huge part of my path. So now I've circled back to you a number of times over 20 years, my goodness. Uh, but that is great. the beginning. That's a great origin story. Thank you for telling that. <laughs> yeah. You found the book just a few years after it came out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. When there were actually still bookstores and Barnes and Nobles and yeah. Right. And this is funny. I used to give it out to people. I bought multiple copies and I would give it out to people because I felt that if my friends and family read this book, it would solve their problem. I I didn't yet understand. Oh, that's so funny. The uniqueness of the path, but that was how much it inflamed me. And I still have multiple copies because I wasn't able to give them all away. Maybe I'll You know what's funny? When my new book came out last year, I did a little tour of the Midwest and I went to all these yoga studios. And of course, some of them had been bashed by COVID, Mm -hmm. but I went to a, a big one and they said, oh yeah, we used yoga in the quest for the true self for 20 years as our basic text for our yoga teacher training. But we don't use it anymore because students have found it too complicated. And I thought, that's so, it's such an interesting barometer of the way in which our concentration spans have diminished over the last 20 years, because it's not really that complicated. And I, I wrote it for a mainstream yoga audience, but everyone will tell you that people don't like to read books with any sense of complexity now. It's oh, alarming, honestly. It is. Yeah. I agree because your books, all of them, they're 
their stories, really. Their stories, their stories, yeah. And I, I know that the yoga community is not, not necessarily by nature, hugely intellectual. So I, I write with stories and I like writing that way. It's mm-hmm. fun. It's fun. And usually the stories helps the theory to stick a little bit. But I guess we've moved into some new, we've crossed some Rubicon where like yeah. you have to even spoon feed it more. I mean, that's something I'm dealing with all the time in talking about my work. Absolutely. Because I would like to give it the nuance that it deserves. No human beings the same. We deserve this phenomenological attention. That's right. And I get the feedback repeatedly, like it's too complicated, even in social media. It's too complicated. I don't know. Just tell me how you can help me. Yeah. So interesting. Dear me. With my... Two books ago was Soul Friends. I don't know if you've dipped into that, but mm-hmm. in the paperback edition, I had to take out a lot of the psychoanalytic stuff, which was lovely, important stuff, but it was too deep for, for the reader. It was too too challenging. So so there we go. Very interesting challenge right now. It really is. And it's comforting to hear you deal with it too, because I think that you're writing one of the reasons I really love it and one of the reasons I think it's popular is it does walk that line of being mainstream. Yeah. A person can receive it and also not brushing aside the depth that humans experience. It's the challenge of writing, as I've attempted to do, interpreting the great ancient scriptures of yoga, which are very sophisticated and only just now really being proven out by contemporary neuroscience and so forth. These scriptures like the Yoga Sutra and the, and the Gita and so forth, they're quite esoteric and complex. So the challenge that I've always loved is how do I translate this for the mainstream reader in such a way they can get a sense of, oh, this, this relates to my life, right? Right. And I think the most successful attempt at that was the great work of your life. I just kind of nailed with those four pillars and so forth. I kind of got the essence of the Gita in a way that people can absorb it. But I've tried that with all of all of my books. And it's it's a cool puzzle as a writer to try to communicate that. I bet. I've been trying to write for a long time. And that's at the more I do, the more I admire what you've been able to accomplish in that I can see the puzzle now. Before yeah. I just put you right. on a pedestal and I was like, God up there. And now I'm like, oh no, he figured that out. Yeah. Like, what are you writing, Allison? I, I know I'm not supposed to be asking the question. No, you can. I mean, that's the beauty of this. <laughs> like, I love the, this podcast is very organic. So I'm trying to write about the process of transformation. And part of that is, our cosmology and our worldview and how that informs most of our suffering, basically. And part of that is the sexual healing that I've done and part of it's psychedelics. But what I'm trying to do now is write it. I'm done with, I am done with this kind of like beginning, middle and end way of talking about Mm -hmm. transformation. Because it's, that is the fallacy to begin with. And your pillars of the awake mind, it reminds me of that. At core, we aren't who we think we are. So I don't want to perpetuate that by writing this linear argument that makes you think you got it. 
I want to present the fragments and I'm as broken and wounded as I am whole and both are true. And I think we're ready to tolerate that. So that's what I'm trying to write. Just that. That's lovely. Are you writing from personal experience? Are you telling your stories? I'm mixing personal experience and present moment with some memoir, with some theoretical breakdown of sort of things around trauma, object constancy, these types of things. So it's a collage, basically. That's great. That's the way I write, too. Really? Yeah. I mean, I, I mix theory and story and a little bit of memoir. And it, it comes yeah, out as, as a stew that I think is interesting for a lot of people, right? It, it is. It doesn't. So I noticed, like I've been reading Dharma in Difficult Times yeah. in the past week. And I noticed you do have these very short parts. Like they're almost fragments, but it doesn't yeah. read disjointed. It does also flow. So that's very interesting. You're saying your process is more like you write this and then you write this. Right. Exactly. I would say The Dharma in Difficult Times is perhaps the least autobiographical book I've done. So there are a few very personal stories in there, like the Harriet Beecher Stowe chapter with the death of my nephew. But I, that's one of my favorite chapters because I, I really like when you can take a concept of theory and open it up with a story, which is what the Harriet Beecher Stowe chapter did in, in that book. I have had this on the calendar to interview you. And like a good girl, I said, I'm going to read this book. Good. Read everything else that you've written. And I had it in my head, like, this is my homework kind of thing. Yeah. Never do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I start reading. Yeah. And I, Gandhi is opening up worlds. I never paid any deep attention to his autobiography. It's incredible. And and this is one of the things that you do so incredible. You tackle the big names. You don't, you have littler names too, but to write a couple chapters on Gandhi, that's not a straightforward thing. Then you just dive into the Thoreau, another huge name that you're making come off the page and cast your full vote. And I'm enlivened and I'm like, I'm back in Cope's world. Go, go, go. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you love Then I love it. Then yeah. Harriet Beecher Stowe. Right. And so what you don't know, I've had touch points with you for so long that I didn't know, and you wouldn't know about me, that I lost a son about the same age. Oh, dear. I'm so sorry. As Harriet, thank you. Yeah. And what you wrote, most people do not understand that, especially for the mother, there is a very real struggle simply to survive, yeah. to want to go on. Yeah. Absolutely. And there there we were. This was my twin sister, my twin sister who lost her Henry at 35. And as I say in that chapter, we all went through it together, our little pod of a family. And it's it's so painful that very few other people want to participate anymore. They can't bear it, right? Mm-mm. So I learned from Sandy that how difficult it was for her to go on and survive. And then I thought about Harriet Beecher Stowe, who had the same, not quite the same experience, because her little son, Charlie, was only two, but it transformed 
her world. It's like it's like she said she entered into a new zone of life that yes. very few people enter into. And this gave her this connection with suffering and with the suffering of others. And it opened up her compassionate heart. And, and it's done the same for Sandy and for me. It just cracked us open. So that chapter is about finding the gift in a wound. Yes. Yeah. And that's perhaps one of the biggest wounds any human being can endure. So I'm very sorry to hear about your, was it a son? Yes, at first. So again, a different experience, but I've been a seeker for a long time. It was like a long time after I first found your work. A lot of practice, but I needed that much pain to be able to really find my dharma, which is of course still a work in progress. But writing this, I mean, you write it for all of us at different places. Because I felt so like confirmed and reminded of what brought me here. It it wasn't a a cakewalk. No, it wasn't a cakewalk. And you know what's interesting? For that reason, this book is not selling nearly as well as Great Work of Your Life. Interesting. People would rather look at the experience of being lit up and follow your breath, as Joseph Campbell said. And just as we found that there were very few friends and family who could join us in the grief for Henry, it's a step for a lot of people to open to the dilemmas that I describe in each one of the lives, the 11 or 12 characters that I write about here. Interesting. It was. was, I was surprised, actually, because I thought, wow. Anybody who read Great Work of Your Life is probably going to want to take the next step and look at at this because so much of it is about the relationship between individual transformation and social transformation, which it seems to me we're clearly right in the center of right now. Yes. Uh, and, And the notion that in the Gita that you can't live a full, truly human life without also considering the lives of all of those around you and, and the life of the world, essentially. That's uh, right. That's a very radical notion in a narcissistic culture like ours, where we're so wrapped up in our own success and our own thriving, which is fine. This notion that thriving and being a fully like human being, as the yoga traditions put it, also requires us to be committed to the well-being of the whole people. This is, I think this is so important because what I notice is, yes, a great attraction to the great work of your life, easily referred. Right. And it's how I approached it originally. And then when I I did your online course recently and you talked about, you had a whole list of the myths of Dharma. And it made me think of, I don't know if you've heard what Liz Gilbert is talking about these days, but she's talking about purpose as the biggest lie and scourge we've been taught in the way it's being taught because it's basically teaching you to become like an online guru with all the courses and that there's only one thing you can do and you must be super successful at it and this is the whole thing which made me think of your myths of dharma and i wonder if you'd like to say a little bit about that well yeah this is at the very heart of the contemplative view of being a human being is that the source of suffering in life mm-hmm. is grasping and clinging and holding up there and there, there are two forms of grasping in the buddhist tradition there's reaching oh i want that i've got to get that goal i've got to get to there over there on the other side of the river and protecting so reaching for your imagined fantasy life and then protecting what you have 
right? And we see this all over our political landscape right now, the suffering of protecting power and wealth. And it's another form of grasping. So I, I'm not closely following Liz right now because I'm writing another book of my own, but she's right on. That's the big lie of our culture and what's made us so selfish, really, so focused on ourselves where the, the real freedom comes in, in letting go of that grasping and clinging and craving and holding on and protecting and opening our hearts. And in, in the Buddhist tradition, when the mind settles down and quiets down, that's when these lovely states of Brahmavihara arise, that is, mm. Passion naturally arises in the heart that's settled and not grasping and clinging. Sympathetic joy, loving kindness. The Buddha said these are all, this is our true nature, but it arises when the mind quiets and settles and when we stop the frantic grasping to curate our lives on Facebook, right? I'm not on Facebook. Well, I have a company that manages my all of that. I don't even know how to get on my Facebook account. I guess I do that point. But there's a sense of everybody in their own little castle curating their fantastic <laughs> lives. And that's just the, precisely the path to suffering in, the, in these traditions. Mm. Right? So that even the yes. yoga tradition has been preempted by, I see this every day. I live in a small city, Albany, and I go to the local studio to do high yoga, which is fabulous. I do it quite a few times a week. And there's absolutely no, in that in their teaching, touching down into the real roots of suffering. So that it, it simply promotes this idea that happiness is about being perfect and looking perfect and having the perfect body and losing that 10 pounds. And it's like they've, they've missed the real jewel of the contemplative traditions, right? Let go of that. And, and when you do, all kinds of really cool stuff happens. And it requires practice. This is one of the things that you talk about over and over. And I think we miss a lot of the time that if we just listen to the podcast and I'm ambivalent about even having one, to be honest, because it's like, if we just listen to the podcast, if we just get the info, we read Stephen's books, we'll get it. But actually it's about the practice. Can you speak to that? Can I ever speak to that? I mean, I'm so glad you brought this up because I'm 74 now. And for whatever reason, all of my friends here in Albany, I have a wonderful community of friends. They're all in their 40s. I'm constantly encouraging them, and that's too soft a word, to learn to meditate, to learn to sit, to learn to the technique of meditation that, that systematically on a daily basis allows your mind to settle down into its true nature, or that allows your mind to watch as you see how suffering is generated in the mind itself. And I've been practicing for 40 years now, and my cushion, my meditation cushion, and my yoga mat are like my home base that I go back to again and again. And talk about coming home to the self. It's coming home to my true nature every day. And it reminds me of how easy it is to lose perspective on that without a daily practice or an every other day practice or some kind of regular touching into the inner world where all of this lives. Yes. So practice. It it's so it, it, Yeah. I believe this deeply and I experience it as well. 
And sometimes it's, yeah, it's hard to express because when you're expressing, you're expressing. Well, you know something else? We, I'm very involved in the Shambhala organization here in Albany because they have the most robust meditation center. And I knew Chukram Chukram Rinpoche way, way back mm. when he was in Boston and in the early days, I knew his Sangha there. And so at our center, we teach a learning to meditate course every other Wednesday night. And we have a lot of people who show up, I want to learn to meditate. 90% of them never come back. And that's because it takes practice. And it's also not that easy. My great friend, Sylvia Borstein, wrote a book called It's Easier Than You Think. It was what her first book. And later she said, that book should have been called It's Harder Than You Can Imagine. Because actually sitting with yourself, sitting with your thoughts, feelings, sensations, and developing the witness around all that, it's hard. And so people have a mistaken notion of what meditation is. They think it's stopping the mind. They think it will create instant bliss. My friends at the Insight Meditation Society said they get, always get these letters addressed to the Instant Meditation Society, right? It's actually the Insight Meditation Society, the Instant Meditation Society. So people, I have to encourage people to stay with it because it is difficult. I've been meditating for 40 years. It can still be difficult. I still have days like yesterday when I sat for an hour and a half with my Dharma buddy I got very quiet, but I didn't get down into that blissful place that I like. And so that's okay. I just watch that and notice what which particular storm is brewing in my mind. It still produces fruit. I still drop into that witness consciousness where I'm the observer of what's going on. I'm not over-identified with the storm in my mind. I'm just watching it pass through like the weather. So you're very right to bring up this point, this and for a lot of people who are whose minds are really restless, yoga is a great doorway in. Yoga, walking meditation, all of those create the same kinds of fruit in the brain. And you know a lot about this, I'm sure. And are maybe a little bit of an easier entry than sitting meditation. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. I had a Zen teacher. She was a nun. And back when I was a trader and I was very agitated and restless, I told her I couldn't meditate. She said, start with one minute. And I thought, yeah. And then one thing I noticed too, certainly in my own practice, is that meditation stirs things. And often it stirs things we don't know what to do with, which is why I was so attracted to your work. And my path has resonances in that there's the spiritual and the therapeutic and the value of speaking to another human being and working through things has a real place. Another thing our society doesn't do that much of, that sort of honest, open dialogue. Can you speak to how you see, I, I mean, you wrote Yoga and the Quest for the True Self like 25, 24 years ago. How do you see that now in terms of the relationship between the psychological and the spiritual? Oh, it's evolved profoundly, Allison. When I was in graduate school, I was very much into meditation. I had met Chukun Trumper's group, and I was into meditation. And I talked about that in an interview at Brigham and Women's Hospital, where I was being interviewed for a position in the psychiatry department. Well, I lost the job, right? That was considered very, very questionable to, to uh -huh. even talking about meditation or helping your patients perhaps learn it. Nowadays, if you go to Harvard, for example, 
there's a huge group of people who are studying the relationship of classic Western depth psychology and the contemplative traditions very seriously. You can take this back to, say, Jack Engler at Harvard, Dan Brown at Harvard, now Paul Fulton. And so the relationship between the two now is much more natural and fluid, right? Mm -hmm. People sit, stuff comes up. It's confusing. There's resistance, all of that stuff. And Meditation teachers don't necessarily know how to help you with that, but your therapist does. So this this beautiful symbiotic relationship back and forth between getting in touch with the body and the breath and the sensations and watching the mind and the kind of psychodynamic work that we all need to do. I mean, keep in mind, the Buddha said, all human beings are quite deluded, quite deluded. And that was Sigmund Freud's great rediscovery in 20th century of psychology. He said, the art of psychoanalysis is to help the patient see through their own self-deception. So our capacity to deceive ourselves about who we are, what's going on inside. Emily Dickinson wrote, the self behind the self-reveal should startle most. I love that. The self behind the self. The part of the self that we keep hidden, locked away in the basement, we want access to that. We want access to our full aliveness. What are you splitting off? What can't you bear? And way back in Quest, I was talking about Elvin Semrad's acknowledge experience and bear reality, right? And so our yoga practice really helps us to acknowledge experience and bear experience, direct physiological experience because we live in the body. And then he had a fourth one, which was put it into perspective, which is brilliant. It's begin to disidentify with the storm and drunk inside, not to banish it, but not to own it as who you are necessarily. So, I mean, the advent of positive psychology was all initiated by the relationship of psychiatrists and psychologists to the Dalai Lama and his work in his Mind and Life's annual seminars where they had that one fantastic year where Dan Goldman was there. He wrote a book about it. I don't know if you've read that book, but the story is this. They had convened this Mind and Life Institute with a ton of great Western psychotherapists and neuroscientists and with the Dalai Lama's own monks. And they started out talking about difficult mind states. So greed, hatred, delusion, all of those what we call the afflictions, the tormented states, the afflicted states. And then they got to a certain point and the Dalai Lama said, okay, let's talk about the salutary mind states now. Loving kindness, sympathetic joy, compassion, gratitude, generosity. Let's talk about that. And the Western shrinks had very little to add. It was stunning. The, wow. the Western monks had all of these distinctions about what creates happiness. and the Western men and women were a gag, a gog at the subtle distinctions that they had about creating happiness and creating well-being and fulfillment. While they they recognized, well, we mostly just focus on the difficult mind states, and we have a lot to say about that. It's good. But this idea that you could also at the same time systematically promote the cultivation of happiness and well-being and so forth, that's where positive psychology started, like in and so forth. And now it's had a huge 
influence and a very salutary one, don't you think? Absolutely. And I remember when I was in my psychodynamic training, how suspicious we all were of positive psychology. Right. Right. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) They don't get it. (laughs) They're heretics. They don't realize how much our true nature is suffering. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that's true. And there was some flaky stuff. I'm For not sure. saying it wasn't in positive psychology, but it's gone way deeper than that now. And I, I'd urge people to look up Paul Fulton, for example. I think mm-hmm. Institute of Psychotherapy and Spirituality. But yeah, it's come, it's, it's matured so beautifully. Right. I love that. Yeah. So when we're on a path, there's like this natural human tendency. We want things to get better. We're suffering. We want to feel better. We're not happy in work. We want purpose in work. And this is something I'm I'm really like with all the time is like, I'm not sure that's actually true that things get better. And I think it's absolutely true. And I wonder what you would say, having been in practice for so long about the experience of suffering as well as pain. Right. So, well, the classic answer to that question, of course, is Sylvia Borstein's great, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional, right? Mm-hmm. So there, nobody's denying that there is pain, there is conflict, there is discomfort. But to add to that with a narrative or a commentary about it in, in a negative way to add reactivity that I'm suffering. Oh, I'm suffering. Oh my God, I have pain. That's what the Buddhists call the second arrow. The first arrow is the pain itself, the pain of being a human being of which there is so much. I mean, human beings, I have this little puppy right now, and I, I'm learning so much about what it is to be human because my little puppy, Kenzie, is, is an entirely contingent being. She's totally dependent on me. And so she sits and looks up at me, and I am now responsible for this little being. And one of the things that I've learned is I too, as a human being, am entirely contingent, right? I, I'm dependent on the world, on my network, on, on so much. And so I, I love, what's his name's new book, Being Mortal. This is part of being mortal. There is pain and there's loss and there's conflict. But what contemplative practice allows you to do is to not over-identify with it, not catastrophize around it. The brain has a negativity bias, so we tend to be so caught up in our difficulties, our catastrophes. Mark Twain said, I'm an old man now, and I've had many catastrophes in my life, but most of them never happen. Mm. That's what we all do. So contemplative practice allows us to create a little space, just a little bit of breathing space around that, where we're not turning against ourselves. We're not shooting that second arrow at ourselves with judgment and with the suffering of pain. Most pain clinics, they discover that a lot of the source of pain is our reactivity to it, is our our hatred of it, our aversion to it. And one of the first things I learned in, in meditation was to work with aversion, which is considered in most of the traditions the most difficult mind state because it can become very dense states of hatred, 
hatred, aversion. And of course, the first thing you learn is what do you do with that? Well, first of all, you notice it. As soon as you've noticed it, you've created a little space around it. Oh, I'm caught up in a moment of aversion. I'm caught up in a moment of, of hatred. I hate the way I feel. I hate the way it is for me in my life. As soon as you name it, oh, that's aversion. Mm. That's a mind state. As soon as you name it, you've created a little bit of space around it. And then the instruction is always, okay, now go into it. Where is that aversion in your body? Where do you feel it? Oh, okay, well, I feel it kind of across here and in my jaw. I feel so much anxiety in my head. You begin to investigate it. So the first thing is to name it. And the second thing is to investigate it in your body. And this was the Buddhist brilliant move. Investigate it in your body. And the amazing thing that happens is as you begin to investigate it, it begins to lose some of its power, right? It begins mm -hmm. to go, oh, what is that hatred? Oh, it's a burning in my chest. It's a tightness in my throat. You begin to create, again, space around it so that you're not identified with it. And there's some white space in the picture. And you realize that's that's your real nature. It totally gets easier. I mean, I use these tools all the time, every day, every day of my life. I have a moment, like just now, when I couldn't get online with you, and I panicked, and I, I started feeling it was in my body, right? Mm -hmm. Guess where panic is? And aversion, I, I didn't like that. I didn't like that moment. I couldn't get in. I didn't know where you were because we hadn't had phone contact yet. So right there, just before we got on, I worked with, oh, Steve, okay. You're experiencing a moment of, moment of aversion. Breathe, relax into it. Where is it in your body? Oh, it's right here. You breathe into that and let it soften just a little bit. Softens everything. Gives you a little bit of, of distance. So over time, you begin to work with these things and it actually begins to change the brain, right? Mm -hmm. Because rather than reacting from the limbic system, you begin to create new neural pathways between the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system. Prefrontal cortex being the seat of discernment and altruism and all that. Limbic system being the, the more primitive brain. And there begins to be this little dialogue. Oh, okay, that's just that's just my squirrel brain reacting, right? It's not who I am. It's not reality. And over time, I'm a very anxious person. So I used to have something called refractory states. A refractory state is an emotional state that becomes so dense that you can't get out of it. You're, mm -hmm. you know, it, it involves tunnel vision. You're stuck in it. You're pissed off, right? You're angry. And you're angry at the guy at the gym who stole your barbell that you were working with and, and you can't get over it all day. Slowly, with practice, with using all those tools, you begin to, that, we now know this scientifically, that refractory state gets shorter and shorter. Mm. It's not a miracle. Sylvia Borstein used to say, it's like you take the shirt with the jelly stain, you put it through the washer over and over again. The stain never fully comes out, but it's diminished profoundly. And so life just becomes a little bit easier. It becomes a little, you can flow with it a little bit more. I'm 74. I wouldn't trade my meditation and yoga experience for anything in the world. It's allowed me to be a human being that's what I would say at ease with life. Mm. I'm at ease with it. In the Brahma Viharas, in the, in the metta meditation, we say, may you be happy, healthy, and at ease. Oh, yeah. 
of them. At ease is is flowing with the way it is rather than going to war with reality, going to war right. with the way it is. Right. So yeah, that's a long disquisition on your very good question, Allison. It's worth the length, I think. Well, the thing is, and, and you know this better than anybody, all of the brain science now points to this. It right. Does. The, the brain science is all validating what Patanjali wrote about 2,000 years ago. So, yeah. okay, greed, hatred, and delusion, right? What is that? Well, when we investigate the brain, we discover that human beings are hardwired to pay attention to two things, threat and opportunity, right? Threat and opportunity. And even though we've been through our finishing schools of college, if you pay attention to your day, the brain's still focusing on threat and opportunity. Oh, that woman gossiped about me. I'm so mad at that, right? Uh-huh. Opportunity. Ooh, I bet I could make a buck there. And so what the t- tradition said was these practices attenuate that default to threat and opportunity because you begin to notice, oh, right now I'm caught up like my little puppy chasing a squirrel. Do you know that when my puppy chases a squirrel, her hearing goes, she goes deaf because everything is focused on narrow tunnel. And now we know that meditation widens that tunnel vision. Meditation, did you know this, actually increases peripheral vision. I love that. Not only does it increase the perspective of your mind, it actually increases your peripheral vision, which is both symbolic and organic. Right. So I love the fact that we're coming along behind these great traditions now, proving them out scientifically. And this is going to give them entree into the Western world where we require that. We really require that these things be proved out. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm really excited for this conversation because it's like confirming for my community reminding us, yes, sometimes we talk about psychedelics, sometimes we talk about mindset, but reminding us of the ground, the opportunity that's right here in our daily practice. And it's all right here. And this is where it all flows from. You can go back to the Buddha's experience where, and and you made this point a couple of times already, where he was, even as a semi-enlightened being, caught up in grasping and craving for exalted states. And you remember the experience of the Buddha under the rose apple tree when he remembered an experience that he had when he was a kid where he was sitting under the rose apple tree. His, his father was plowing the fields. His mother was nearby knitting. And he had this experience of everything's okay. There's nothing wrong. I'm happy. It's all right. I haven't done anything to make it all right. It's just my nature. And on the night of his awakening, the Buddha, much, much later in his life, was sitting under the Bodhi tree, and he remembered that experience in his youth. And he said, oh, I have to stop working so hard. The happiness, well-being, contentment, all of that is is built in. It's already there. Yes. Often and relax into it. And so the Buddha stopped being an overachiever at that point and let his true nature arise. And then and later he would say, Loving kindness, sympathetic joy, the Brahma Viharas, all those so-called divine states, that's our true nature. He said, grasping, aversion, and delusion are just visitors to the mind. Isn't that wonderful? It's just spectacular. I mean, this is everything. 
And it, I wrote down three of your characteristics of the awake mind that I think re- relate really well to the point you and I are making. It's we're so into the exalted states, especially when we start to work with some of the psychedelic medicines, they'll give us a lot of that. And so, yes, perceives the inherent interconnectedness in all things, sees all the potential events of the universe in each aspect of the universe. So these are great. But if we don't have the first one stand still at the center of the whirlwind of life, we are just grasping for all this information. It's non-dual. It's this, it's that. It doesn't do us a lick of good. Absolutely. This is what I love about the contemplative traditions. And in their best, they're focused on practice. Right. I studied, my first teacher was Shikram Drinker Pache, who was a crazy wisdom guru for sure. Right. But that community, this, they practice yeah. Vipassana, they practice Shamatha Vipassana, which is concentration and insight, like their hair was on fire, like the Buddha said. Practice, practice, eat this. And even though I didn't love all the doctrine and dogma necessarily that was involved with that, the practice was fantastic and still is so i went to divinity school i was going to be an episcopal priest back in graduate school and all they taught there in divinity school was theology how many angels can dance on the head of a pin right theology break it all down in your mind and understand it all didn't help me at all they didn't teach you how to pray can you believe that in in, kind of amazing They didn't teach you how to meditate. They didn't teach you much of anything that was all that useful. It was all theology. The contemplative traditions, yoga, Buddhism, meditation, just the reverse. Just sit down on your cushion, settle down, right? Practice. And if you don't settle down, that's fine too. Notice what's happening, what's arising, what's passing away. So it's a miracle that we need in the in our culture so badly, so badly. That's why I implore my friends to learn it. And most of them don't. Most of them don't. But we do our best, right? Mm-hmm. We do. I have a couple very specific questions that I want to ask you before we finish. And then I want to come back to what you just said. One is, so we talked about threat and opportunity. Well, one of the threats for public people right now is backlash on the internet. Pretty much, I think no matter who you are, you're getting really strong projections through like maybe email or like ways that it's hard to have a boundary to. And certainly I have taken almost everything off my phone and tried like this technology game of trying to make sure you can't come. But I wonder if there are different people talk about different ways of working with this. And obviously, eventually, it, we know our true nature, like that's the intent. And it's okay what's happening out there. And we're human beings and these things hurt and we experience them. I'm wondering what you could say about that being a fairly public person in some ways yourself. Boy, I'll tell you, it does hurt. And one of the tenets of practice that I love is take nothing personally, right? And I I try to practice that, but I will tell you this for sure. If you stand up in front of a group of people in 2023, you will get shot down in a million different ways from both sides. Both sides will shoot you down, right? I'm going to have to say to you that I'm a learner in this regard. I, 
I try to stay out of the line of fire. I just do because I'm a very sensitive person. So I try not to read the comments on my books, even though occasionally I do. I try to stay out of the line of fire every now and then. I'll, I'll say no to a talk that I'm asked to give just because I know, oh God, I just know I'm going to get creamed there. And now, and the, and the funny side is Larry Rosenberg was a great insight meditation teacher. He used to say this. He said, when I give a Dharma talk in the hall, I will go out to the bulletin board and students are allowed to put comments on the bulletin board and half of them will be negative and half of them will be positive. So either that was the worst Dharma talk I've ever heard for X, Y, and Z reason, or that was the best. And I love that because it's so true, but it is true too that people's comments now come with daggers, which I don't remember as a young man. I don't remember the level of incivility that we now have. And it's, it's so painful. I just, it wasn't a part of my life growing up in Ohio, or even I went to college out here in, in New England to a very fine college and graduate school. I just don't remember the amount of ill will that comes with comments and reactivity. And I do a lot of teaching of the Brahma Viharas, of metta meditation, of systematically promoting metta meditation. Metta means it's usually translated loving kindness. It really means friendliness. Just the Sanskrit term is, is maitri, which literally means friendliness toward all beings. Right. Friendliness. The, the essence of loving kindness in our traditions is what we might call goodwill. So goodwill, you know, Allison may be happy. I wish you well. I hope you're well. I hope you continue well. This is the kind of goodwill that issues up from the heart when the mind gets still and quiet and, and non-reactive. And so as an antidote to the kind of ill will that we see everywhere, I try to teach a lot of goodwill. That's beautiful. But I just turned down a speaking engagement a month ago, a very good one. But I knew I was going to get trained in this particular situation, and I still want it. I don't need it, right? Yeah. Said, somebody came to him with rage and anger, and he said, you brought me the gift of anger. I'm giving it back to you. I don't want it. Right. I thought, okay, yeah, that's, yeah. that's a good approach. I don't want that. I don't want it. I mean, I hate hearing that you experience it. But I know enough to know that you do, which tells us a lot. And it's so comforting that we're not alone because sometimes it just gets so personal that it can feel personal. And of course it isn't. Well, it isn't, but it does It does feel personal and it does hurt. It hurts. Yes. But if you have your heart wide open and somebody shoots an arrow at it, it hurts. It's hard to maintain perspective. And so I didn't help you much there. In fact, you might Oh, help. you did. <laughs> well, you? I my number one thing is a very to-do thing, which is a boundaries on my technology. Yeah, I have that too. And more and more all the time. And then what I did is I just released a podcast episode on betrayal and being cheated on in love relationship. And it was recorded before I received quite a vicious attack on my stance, which is really just, it hurts. My stance on being cheated on, it hurts. <laughs> like it's nothing more than that. But, and so I gathered a group of people around me 
who I knew loved me and supported me. And I just said, it's coming out today. Could you send me some nice messages during the day? So I didn't have that silence that sometimes can feel scary for me anyway. Do you read those comments? No, but if someone gets in an email, then I don't get many. I mean, I don't have the size of readership anywhere close to that you do. But email is a tough one because I do read my email. Me too. Me too. I do read my email. Yeah. Well, it's a practice, Allison. Yes. I think whatever you can do to protect yourself is is well done. That's what Thank I you. Do. Thank you. And it's something that comes up quite a lot in my community. So I know they're going to really appreciate your comments as well. Because even on, whether it's a very well-known author such as yourself or us going about our daily lives, it it happens. These things happen out of the blue. People have perceptions and there is more flow of the negative these days. So I think it's very, very helpful. I want to switch us to another topic. <laughs> Shake it off because I don't want to, I don't want to end without talking about Marianne because I found Marianne through you as a Canadian. Yes. So I was, re- I, again, yoga and the quest for the true swell. You're talking about this woman in the purple turban, the whore of Babylon, and my whole body is on fire. Who is this woman? I need to know her. And I ended up doing your retreat, your last retreat with her, with you two. And then- Wow. Cool. Thank you for letting me know that. (laughs) You're welcome. It's a long time ago. And she, a picture of her sits on my desk. She is my- complete idol energetically. And I ended up doing some more work with her. So thank you. And I, I would love to- telling me this. I mean, did you do body soul rhythms with her? I was signed up for her last one and it was canceled. I did some workshops with her. So I was able to do some, but we, we just passed like just as she was getting too ill. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so sorry. She was, I wrote about her too in the great work of your life about mm-hmm cancer. And oh my God, what a magnificent woman. Have you read her book, Coming Home to Myself? Yeah. Isn't that wonderful? Mm-hmm. It's as good a compendium of Jung as you will ever get. Yes. Right. My and- friends who do not understand Jung, who's most everybody since he writes in the Germanic style, I say, read Marion's book, Maybe. Coming Home to Myself. Yeah. And she was so ahead of her time. I mean, she was barely getting through the Jung Institute because she was bringing the body into it. And okay. now I don't feel like you can really work with Jung effectively without Marianne's work. You absolutely can. I think somebody has picked up her body soul rhythms, that beautiful mm. course that she used to teach. So. And I taught it with her. Were you there the time that we had Robert Bly? No. Okay. So this was a never-to-be-forgotten event where Robert Bly, the great uh, teacher of men's work, really, and poet, happened to be teaching at Kripala the same weekend. So we had these evenings where they would both read poetry, and some of our friends would play music. And Marion was down, as she said in, in her Emily Dickinson, like rummaging around in the earth with the, the goddess energy. And Robert was up in the heavens with his transcendent dual stuff. And it was such a great, great opportunity to see these two masters, both of whom died not long after that at work. Yeah. Amazing. And one of the things that I loved about your collaboration is I think I don't find this as much with your work because 
I feel that you've got the emotional piece, which is why I'm attracted to it. But certainly the meditative path can be a little denying of fire, emotion, mess, body in the way that Marion is affirming. It's so like, and that's more my energy. So I really loved watching you to collab and really affirm each other that there's not one way we have to be, that we're each our own person. And both Stephen and Marion are <laughs> wonderful. Well, and of course, Marion taught me so much about looking for what's split off and where the shadow is. And that great event that I wrote about happened in 1994, a big conference on spirituality and psychotherapy that I organized. And Marion was there and Dan Goldman and Jackie Small. Jackie Small was also all about the shadow. And she was my teacher about learning to pay attention to what's split off. I love Nietzsche says, anything that you exile to the basement or the attic will eventually come back to you as fate. Yep. And, and it's just, it's true. So anything that we split off and Freud had the same insight, really, those things that we split off come back to us as fate. He called it the return of the repressed. And as he said, the truth will out. And that was the essence of his whole genius, like uh, mm. the truth will out. It will finally, and it, it, it will either come to you as an alien or you will begin to integrate it. That was a wonderful collaboration with Mary and I toured her. She used to show up those evenings when we had the poetry readings and I, you know, gold lamet gown. She was very dramatic. <laughs> you was. She was very dramatic. And of course, her husband, Ross, was a great English professor and poet and writer. And they just made a wonderful couple in balance. Yeah. Totally. Well, I think the truth will out is the perfect place to ask you my final question, which is there is, it's very easy to get really scared mm -hmm. when we look around at the world. And we've certainly touched on some things, directions that don't look very good. And we understand that what we don't recognize becomes fate at a level. I think we're all in process of understanding that. And then we also have these glimpses of our true nature and of, of the okayness of ourselves and of the world. What kind of outlook do you have? What's your outlook? It's funny you ask. My ex-partner, David, and I were together for 15 years, and he's, a, he's now a very good friend, has a very dark outlook on the world, right? And some of it's based very much in reality. And they'll constantly harp on how human beings are so destructive and we have been to the environment. I'm not sure why I have a rosier outlook than that. A lot of the evidence doesn't point to a rosy outcome or outlook, but I think it's because of my own practice that I I believe in in the best of human beings, the best of human beings, which you and I see a tremendous amount of in our contemplative world, right? Beings who are who are learning to be to live as full human beings with open hearts and compassionate hearts, and are connected to their their inner genius and their gifts. Mm -hmm. And I just have the sense that human beings have and will, especially as we connect with our. Well, let me let me back up a little bit. So for me, contemplative practice has connected me with the stream of 
consciousness and you might call it wisdom that I realize isn't mine. It's just kind of flowing through me. And I've spent years now, decades studying what I call great lives. That is to say, not people who are necessarily famous or rich, but people who are living as full human beings. And that almost always included some kind of depth practice of meditation or prayer or whatever. And I've seen the way in which these human beings, I write about them in all my books, have been connected to this stream of wisdom and genius that is there in human beings. And that we, at our very best, actually do solve and surmount problems it's really the reason I wrote my last book, The Dharma in Difficult Times, mm. which was about, it was really about human greatness, because mm. every one of those people I portrayed dug down into the ordinary human greatness that we all have, all the way from Gandhi to Thoreau. I mean, Thoreau, all these, these were just ordinary people who opened to their possibility and their aliveness and their heart and their minds. Because remember, in contemplative world, mind and heart is the same thing. And made brilliant contributions to our well-being as a whole world. And I, I have a lot of faith in that. I, I happen to live in a world full of people like that, that have this kind of, this kind of almost supernormal intelligence that's available to all of us. And I know you're very attuned to don't get people ramped up on grasping for supernormal powers. I'm not into that either. But I, I do see that as we become fully alive human beings, we have the capacity to resolve, to rise above. So I just, I don't have the view that my dear friend David has of how catastrophic things are. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm glad I don't because I don't really want to live with that, right? Mm -hmm. I have my dear niece, Catherine, who just had a baby. I think there's reason for hope. Dickinson said, hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul. And I think our souls all have that. Yeah. That's beautiful. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul. Yeah. Well, thank you, Stephen. Thank you for this conversation. It's so meaningful. We're going to put links to everything we talked about in the show notes for everyone. And I have to say, bye, Dharma, in difficult times. That's my message. Thank you. Thank you. I love that. It is a very hopeful book. While still happening in difficult times, still, it's very That's hopeful right. about human nature. So, anyway, my friend, I'm so glad that we had a chance to connect. You told me you were with me us and me way back. That must have been 12. Yeah. And uh, I hope we'll see you at Kripala sometime. Yeah, I hope so too. If this resonates with you, be sure to subscribe so you get all the juicy episodes to come. And if you have a friend who is deep into their personal growth and healing journey, share this podcast with them too. Now go out and experience the aliveness that's here for you today. If what you've been hearing on this episode is resonating with you, you may be wondering if transformational microdosing has the potential to change your life too. Transformational microdosing layers intentionality, ritual, and deep inner work on top of a microdosing practice to create the potential for permanent shifts in your way of being with yourself and others. I invite you to receive my free transformational microdosing guide, which includes all the ins and outs of microdosing, as well as how to set intentions, create ritual, and structure your inner work throughout your journey. I've also included stories from two transformational microdosers. 
The intention of this guide is to empower you to develop a deep and generative relationship with the medicine. You can find the link to receive the guide in the show notes or go to expandwithmicrodosing.com.